0: Last Sunday, Yvonne and I attended a church that has 25,000 members. They weren't all in that one place there, but they broadcast this guy all over the place different locations and in the prisons. But I was reminded that God usually works through a remnant in history. And you can see in England, 5% of the people were uh, Puritans, and they influenced the entire nation. And God has his faithful remnant, that he likes to work through and that may be ourselves. And I want to talk this morning about revival in America, revival in America. Now my passage I'm not going to be using the overhead projector, but if you have a Bible, if you would turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, God is talking about his people in the Old Testament there. I believe this applies to his people in the church nowadays. It's a very familiar text, and it says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and will heal their land. I had time to do three things on vacation last week that I don't normally do too much of. First thing was listen to some news as we're driving down the highway. All the news about the corruption and dishonesty in government. That was most of the news. And then I had time to do some reading and reflect on history and human nature. And some time to reflect on the church in America today and the condition of the church. I don't mean just our church, but I mean the church in general. The church and the nation, I believe, have something in in common, and that is, we forget. Now we've seen challenges in the past, and we've seen times of spiritual war, and just uh, war like we are in today. We don't usually think of ourselves as being in war today, but uh, we are in a war against Islamic terrorism. And we think back about those things, and we study them in history. But we don't give too much thought to what happened back then or what caused the things that happened back then. And uh, we churchgoers typically have the idea that, uh, you know, God will take care of things. If anything comes up, uh, God's going to cover us on that. And so we do what we do. We go to church and we worship Him. We do all those things. And yet sometimes the attitude of some people would be kind of like the scoffers in 2 Peter 3 who said everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Since the beginning of creation in the universe in terms of science, since the beginning of the church in religion, since the beginning of the nation in history, things just kind of go on and yeah, we've had some wars and we've had some challenges. But we don't see that much in terms of a challenge forthcoming today, that a challenge might be right around the corner. Now, I don't think that's presumption on the part of churchgoers. I think it's just that, as Christopher said, we're just too busy. We're just too busy doing all kinds of things to really consider it. And it's not that we uh, don't think about it occasionally, but when we get finished with the busyness busy, then we have the home and the garden and the entertainment and the athletics and whatever it is we do that may certainly be good things, but we don't have much time to go back and think about what's happened in the past and some of the ups and some of the downs and the great awakenings in our country and what conditions were when those things came about, and what seemed to uh, bring those things, what seemed to get God's attention in those days. But this past week, I've had some time to think about that, and here's what I thought. I'm thinking that the church and the nation in general today is kind of like we were in 1941, before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Now, we knew that there was a good possibility of war because anytime you get the entire Pacific fleet gathered in one place, you know there's a possibility of war. Nine battleships, three aircraft carriers, 12 heavy cruisers, eight light cruisers, 50 destroyers, 33 submarines, 100 patrol bombers, and there they all are gathered in one place waiting to see what's going to happen. But nobody thought there would be a surprise attack on Sunday morning. What kind of people would do that on Sunday morning when everybody's just getting over the celebration from Saturday night and some are going to church and whatever they're doing? Well, we did have warnings. There was a coded cablegram to Washington from the United States ambassador to Japan, and that was 10 months earlier, in January of 1941. Then our intelligence service could track Japanese ships by their radio messages. We hadn't cracked the code, but we knew those messages and where they were coming from, and we could tell where their major ships were. But in December, all the radio traffic stopped. Something was up. And then Pacific commanders were advised by commanders in Washington that there could be an imminent Japanese attack. These people didn't like that we were pushing them back to their side of the Pacific, And they may very well attack. Then at 6.30 a.m. on the day of the attack, a Japanese midget submarine was spotted and sunk right at the entrance of Pearl Harbor. And then at 7.45, uh, excuse me, shortly after the submarine was sunk, the uh, radio operator in the North Island of Oahu suggested to the uh, commander, that was the... um, what do they call that guy, the watch commander, that he sighted a group of planes coming toward Pearl about 50 miles out. But the Navy lieutenant that ultimately got that information said, oh, that's a group of B-17s flying in from California. So nobody thought to get anything ready. And many of the big ships even had the ammunition locked up because they just weren't prepared for the attack. But at 745, the bombs began to drop, and fortunately, The focus of the attack was on the battleship force. The three carriers were out at sea. I think one was um, back in America being retrofitted. But it was a surprise attack and it did great damage to our nation. And of course we could have been prepared for that and it wouldn't have done so great uh, damage. Now how does that relate to us in Fredericksburg in late spring of 2015. Brian Murphy, a couple of months ago, began passing out this little book called One Cry. It's uh, authored by Byron Paulus and Bill Eliff. And the book contains a declaration of national spiritual emergency. Pretty serious business. I won't read the declaration, but it's there and they're saying in the book that as a nation, We are in trouble financially, we are in trouble sociologically, we are in trouble educationally, and we are in trouble politically. And all of that means that the underlying problem is spiritual. So really we are in trouble spiritually in this country. I will read um, some of the warning signs that they give in the book here. Fatherlessness. Now we don't know much about that, but there are more unmarried mothers under age 30, than married mothers, with 40% of all babies born out of wedlock. 48% of all first births are to unmarried women. Imprisonment. More than 7 million adults are on probation, on parole, in jail, or in prison. The most of any nation on earth. Perversion. 40 million visitors peruse porn sites on the web. The average age of first visits, 11 years old. Uh, The greatest, uh, highest percentage is in the most religious states, the Bible Belt. The culture of death since since 1973, the total number of American lives lost to abortion, is roughly the equivalent of the collective worldwide death toll of all of World War II. And that's approximately 58 million souls. Chaos and confusion. Biblical cultural standards have been jettisoned by government, the media, and a significant portion of the U.S. population, even within the church. And uh, bondage, America's national debt, continues to grow, and in the future, we face $124 trillion in unfunded liabilities, more than the world's gross domestic product and over $1 million per U.S. taxpayer. And this reality says nothing about the lifestyle of personal indebtedness that plagues many U.S. families. Well, someone might ask, uh, Now, Bob, how do you know we're in a state of national spiritual emergency? Good question. When I was teaching a Bible in a Christian high school, I also, during the summer, taught a course in government and economics. And we had a lot of fun in that course, and as part of the curriculum, we studied a little book, Dividing the Wealth, by Dr. Howard Kirshner. And it's basically a treatise on the benefits of capitalism and the free enterprise system, as opposed to socialism and communism. Basically, he says, you save your money, you get a good idea, out of the capital you've saved up, you open a business... You hire some other people, giving them a job. You begin to make a profit. Out of the profit, you donate to worthy causes, including helping the poor. Uh, You invest in some other businesses, helping people to get their own business started, maybe to invest in some big businesses, providing capital. And the gross domestic product begins to expand, and everybody's better off. Of course, this system only works well if you have a biblical worldview. Because if you're just greedy, it's not going to work uh, so well. So here is my evidence that we're in a national spiritual emergency. Kirchner quotes Alexander Tyler, a Scottish history professor at the University of Edinburgh, and he's writing in 1787. And he says this, A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can exist only until the voters discover they can vote themselves largest. That would be generous bestowal of gifts. They can vote themselves largest out of the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidate, promising the most benefits from the public treasury. With the result, the democracy always collapses over a loose physical pro- policy, always to be followed by a dictatorship. Now, in 2011, 53.6% of Americans paid taxes, 46.4% did not, for whatever reason. In the same year, 49.2% of Americans received benefits of one form or another from the government, the United States government. This does not include retired government employees or military personnel. Now I'm not suggesting that we can lump all the government benefits into one moral category. I'm just pointing out why we vote the way we do. And we're getting close to the breaking point where those who are working and paying taxes are outnumbered by those who are receiving the benefits from the government. Well, when that thing tilts over in the other direction, for a number of reasons, that doesn't put us in a very good position, economically, politically, or even, as we said, spiritually. Now, if you want to see something interesting on the Internet, check out the United States National Debt Clock, because it's got the numbers there. And that thing is ripping right along with millions of dollars just while you're watching it. Zip, 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 zip. Now, I don't see any reason to be melancholy about the spiritual condition of our nation because it's times like this where Christians really begin to shine and the church begins to be the salt and light that we're supposed to be and the reason is when we see that there is an emergency perhaps coming then we get pretty serious about praying and then the Lord begins to hear and answer prayer Uh, it's described in the scripture in many places and God comes in and delivers his people who have repented and who have turned back to him. You see that over and over in the book of Judges where his people uh, get off track and and then the enemy comes in and there's discipline and then they cry out to God and God sends a judge or a deliverer. So I want to encourage us that God desires to deliver His people, the church. And I think God desires to send revival. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones describes what a revival really is. And he says a revival is just the same work that the Holy Spirit is doing all along in conversion, except that it's intensified and there are greater numbers of people who are participating in it but it's the same thing the Holy Spirit is doing now we see the Holy Spirit uh, working occasionally and we're grateful for that working in conversion I mean but we need a time where a lot of people get converted and a lot of people turn back to the Bible God's Word and a lot of people get that biblical world view of loving God and loving others the thing that we talk about all, all the time. But now wait a minute. Haven't we been praying for revival for humpteen years? I know I have. And I remember when we started the church over in the uh, historical building. We were talking about praying for revival. That's 15 years ago, I suppose. Is that what it is? 15, 13 years ago, I guess. And so yes, we have been praying for revival. So we want to take a quick look and see how that works, because we want to think a little bit about answers to prayer. We do have some parables that Jesus gives about the widow woman and the judge. She just keeps on praying. We have a guy at midnight who's knocking on his neighbor's door to borrow some bread, and he just keeps on knocking until he gets what he wants. Well, the good news first, some answers to prayer are immediate, and those are the ones we really like. We shoot up the prayer, well, I was praying about my knee on the way over to uh, Florida to see this doctor, and the Lord answered that prayer just when I got the shot, it's been feeling good ever since. I love those kind of answers to prayer, and we see those in the Bible sometimes. Uh, One time the disciples were in the boat and Jesus was walking on the water and Peter said, hey, can I come out there on the water? And Jesus said, come. And he did. But then he got to looking at those waves and the wind blowing and he began to sink and he said, Jesus, save me. And Jesus reached out his hand and they were in the boat. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Hey, let me give you those verses. Matthew 24. When Peter saw the bo- wind boisterous, he was afraid. He was beginning to sink. He cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when it would come into the ship, the wind ceased. i give you another example of instant answer to prayer. From Sea to Shining Sea, great book. Most of you read the book. Here is um, Peter Cartwright. He's a frontier preacher, frontier Methodist preacher in the early 1800s. He was returning from a general conference, but nightfall overtook him in the Cumberland Mountains. So he's looking for an inn where he may spend the night. Arriving at the inn, he was informed there was going to be a dance there that evening. He considered leaving, but on receiving their assurance of civil treatment, he decided to remain after all. That evening, as the dance went on, he noted the condition of the revelers and felt a powerful desire to preach to them rising within him. Just then a striking mountain beauty came up to him and asked him to dance. To the astonishment and delight of the company, Cartwright stood, bowed to her, and taking her proffered hand, led her to the center of the floor. The fiddler tuned a string and raised his bow, but Cartwright raised his other hand. For years he told them he had never taken an important step without first asking the Lord's blessing upon it. Now he desired to ask God's blessing on the beautiful young woman and all the rest for the kindness they had shown to a stranger. And holding fast to the woman's hand, he dropped to his knees and began praying vehemently for the conversion of the entire company. Stunned silence followed. Then pandemonium. Some fled, others wept, still others fell to their knees. The young woman tried to pull away, but Cartwright's grip on her hand was too strong to break. And she wound up joining him on her knees. Having finished his prayer, he arose and commenced exhorting them to turn from their wicked ways and give their lives to the Lord. And when he finished, he burst into a hymn. The young woman, now prostrate on the floor, began crying out to God for mercy. And this so encouraged Cartwright that he redoubled his efforts and prayed and exhorted and sang all night long. Of those who stayed, many were converted and thus further encouraged. The hard-knuckled preacher tarried two more days." Revival broke out. By the time he was finally ready to leave, Cartwright had organized a society, received 32 into membership, and appointed the innkeeper as the class leader. Revival was now spreading out into the whole region, and Cartwright promised to send them a preacher. Well, that's a pretty immediate answer to prayer for revival. A little bit unusual, but those things can happen. Now, the next thing we want to consider uh, would be When the answer is delayed, but not denied. Delayed, but not denied. And we see a lot of instances of that in the Scripture. And a good one would be when Lazarus was sick... And Mary and Martha sent for Jesus to tell him that their brother was sick. Uh, Jesus loved this, this family, spent time with them. And he was going to come, hopefully, and heal their brother. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. And when he heard, therefore, that he was sick, he stayed two days in the same place where he was. And after that, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. And he said, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent that you may believe, nevertheless, let's go to him. So when he got there, he'd been in the grave four days. And he calls him forth out of the grave, alive again, a much greater miracle than just healing the sick, would be raising the dead. So their request was delayed, but not denied. Then sometimes the answer is no. That's kind of a tough one for us, but it was the same for the Apostle Paul. Paul prayed on three separate occasions, seasons of prayer, I believe, that his thorn in the flesh would be removed. I've been thinking about that, that more this past year, about that thorn in the flesh, what that might have been. But God did not remove his thorn in the flesh. But even though God doesn't answer our prayer, He still gives us peace and grace to put up with the affliction or the situation or the person or whatever it may be. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, God said unto me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities." that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Sometimes the answer is different than we expected. Different than we expected. Now when Daniel was down in Babylon, he was a great man of prayer. In fact, he opened up his windows toward Jerusalem and prayed three times a day offering praise and thanksgiving to God and whatever requests he had. I don't know everything that Daniel was praying, but I'm assuming he was praying for wisdom in the affairs of government there in Babylon. He was praying for the captives who had been taken from Jerusalem who were experiencing 70 years' captivity in Babylon. Uh, He was probably praying all kinds of things. But guess what he got as his answer to prayer? The lion's den. That's not what he expected, that's not what he wanted. But you remember the other rulers, um, the lesser guys were jealous of him, and they reported to the king, and they got this bogus edict that whoever, didn't, whoever made a request to anybody except the king would go to the lion's den. And that was Daniel. Of course, God worked that out, and God was glorified, even when the answer was different than expected. Now, I've got one more. And the answer is many times given progressively. And Christopher was telling us about this one this morning where God came to Abraham in Genesis 12 and said that he would make a great nation of Abraham. Abraham is 75 years old. He gets sidetracked with Ishmael and Hagar. Then he gets back on track and he's waiting and waiting and God sends other messages to him as he speaks to him friend to friend. And then finally, when Abraham is 100 years old, the culmination of all of that communication from God and those promises comes true in the birth of Isaac that we were talking about earlier. So, when we pray for revival or whatever we pray for, it might be immediate. Well, it hadn't been immediate, so we can mark that one off. It might be delayed but not denied. The answer could be no in our lifetime. It's bound to come sometime. It could be different than we expected. Because as I read about revival, and Yvonne and I were first married, we experienced something like a revival among young people in our hometown there in Mississippi. But when revival comes, everything changes. And the things that you normally did, you don't still do sometimes because you don't have time. Because you're too busy seeing about people that want to understand the Bible and have questions and get right with the Lord and counseling and all those kinds of things. So it may be different than expected. What I would hope is just everybody just comes to Christ and embraces the Bible and men get on the radio and are talking about it and men in Washington. But it usually comes from the grassroots up and not from the top down. It probably will happen progressively because most of what god does he does progressively so god intends for us to place our trust in a person not in a procedure it's not that we just um, get all this stuff down we pray all these prayers we got this formula and god has to work god does whatever he wants to do but it seems that prayer that god has ordained is an essential ingredient in revival And certainly, the prayer to prepare for whatever is coming is going to be important. I mean, even just to pray for tomorrow. I remember one time, one morning, Mark went to work, and he was working in a metal factory where they were making gutters and things, and he cut off the end of his thumb with a chop saw. And that morning early, I had prayed for every child, and I really prayed. And it was like there was spiritual capital for that day. And uh, I I was in Birmingham doing some things, counseling with some people. And Yvonne got the telephone call and she ran over to this other town where he was working and got him in the car and she was driving fast now. She didn't have a police escort, but she got down there to Birmingham to the surgeon and he took that piece of thumb and sewed it right back on there. And got a good thumb today. But if you're prayed up, things are going to go better. Now, what is the most difficult thing that a Christian has to do? Is it suffer? I don't think it is because many people choose to suffer for the sake of Christ. Is it sacrifice? I don't think it's sacrifice because a lot of people choose to sacrifice everything they have and even their lives for the sake of the kingdom. I think it's probably to wait To wait. In the scripture there, we see God talking about waiting a good bit. Wait on God seventeen times in the Bible. Wait on the Lord eighteen times. When something is repeated thirty-five times, you know God must have some message there for us. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say on the Lord. And all those other verses that talk about waiting on the Lord. Now some people couldn't wait. Adam and Eve couldn't wait to find out more understanding about why they shouldn't eat the fruit. Cain couldn't wait to find out more about there's no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. Uh, Abraham couldn't wait for that promised son to be born. Jacob couldn't wait for God to work out the birthright and the blessing. Saw that this morning. The Israelites couldn't wait to get out of Egypt, then they couldn't wait to go back to Egypt. You remember, we're going to stone Moses and Joshua and get a new leader. We're going back home to Egypt. Moses couldn't wait for God to straighten out the people, got angry one time too many, didn't make it in the promised land. And Aaron couldn't wait for Moses to come down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. He set up the golden calf while Moses was still there. But a few people we've already seen have demonstrated that they could wait. Isaac could wait for Rebecca, and he got a great bonus out of wait Forty did, did Christopher say he was 40 years old when he got married? That's right. He had waited a long time for this young lady, but she was a beautiful girl, and she was morally pure. Pretty good blessing. Joseph could wait the 13 years, uh, going through all kinds of things as a slave and then in prison, so he could take over as prime minister. Joshua and Caleb, we've been studying, could wait 40 years to get in the promised land while the old generation died off. What does it mean to wait upon God? Well, first it's an attitude, I think, of looking to God to unfold whatever is coming next in our lives, in the life of the church, life of the nation, whatever He's doing. It implies a listening ear. We're listening to God through His Word. We're we're looking, we're evaluating what God is doing in our lives. Uh, then it it requires a heart that's willing to respond to the Lord when He shows us something. It requires an interest in spiritual things and a patience of a strong and robust faith. It doesn't mean inactivity that we're just sitting around just twiddling our thumbs waiting on the Lord. It doesn't mean that we can't get with it when the time for action comes. And there are times for action. It doesn't mean that we are indecisive or hesitant. It has nothing to do with procrastination. It means doing everything that we know is our responsibility and trusting God that He's going to take care of the revival or whatever it is that we're praying for. Now, here's some things to pray for our church. And I want to give you these in just a minute. But I want to close our lesson today by uh, turning, if you will, with me to Daniel the ninth chapter, Daniel, the ninth chapter. And here is an example of a man praying for his nation. A little different than the United States because God was working through the nation as a channel of redemption in those days. If you don't mind, I want to read it in the Amplified Bible. And this would be a good model for our prayers. sounds kind of like Nehemiah's prayer for Jerusalem. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 9, In the first year of Darius, the son of Hasuerus, of the offspring of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Now mine's going to be a little bit different and a little bit longer as it explains in some areas. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books of the number of years which, according to the word of God to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the desolations pronounced on Jerusalem should end. And it was 70 years. And you can find that in Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 12 and so forth. And I set my face to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. We don't need that anymore, I don't think. It was a cultural thing that they did, but it certainly showed that they meant business. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, who keeps covenant, mercy, and loving kindness with those who love Him and keep His commandments? We have sinned. Now remember, Daniel was a pretty good guy. But he's confessing his sin as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. We have sinned and dealt perversely and done wickedly and have rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Neither have we listened to and heeded your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us confusion and shame of face, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, to those who are near and those who are far off, through all the countries to which you have driven them because of the trespass which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belong confusion and shame of face, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and loving kindness and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in His laws which He set before us through His servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law, even turning aside that they might not obey your voice. Therefore the curse has been poured out on us, and the oath that's written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against the Lord God. And he has carried out intact his threats, his threatening words, which he threatened against us and against our judges who ruled us. And he has brought upon us a great evil, for under the whole heavens there was not been anything done before as he caused to be done against Jerusalem. Just as it's written in the law of Moses as to all this evil, that will surely come upon transgressors, so it has come upon us. Yet we are not earnestly begged for forgiveness and entreated the favor of the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and have understanding and become wise in your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought, He has brought upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous and rigidly just in all His works, which He does, keeping His word. And we have not obeyed His voice. And now, O oh Lord, our God, who brought forth Your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and secured Yourself, renown and a name as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O oh Lord, according to all your, righteous, your, right, your rightness and justice, I beseech You, let Your anger and Your wrath be turned away from Your city, Jerusalem, Your holy mountain, because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach and a byword to all who are around about us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to and heed the prayer of your servant Daniel and his supplication, and for your own sake cause your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Of course, the temple had been destroyed. O my God, incline your ear and hear Open your eyes and look at our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you for our own righteousness and justice, but for your great mercy and loving kindness. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, give heed and act. Do not delay for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the former vision, being caused to fly swiftly, came near to me and touched me about the time of the evening sacrifice. And in verse 23, he said, I've come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. And then he gives him some information with regard to things coming in the future. Well, that's the longest prayer in the Old Testament. So I appreciate your patience. But how many times did he say, we, 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 as a nation that had the light? How about we as a church? Who should have been the salt and the light? Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning acknowledging that our nation has turned its back on you and upon your ways, and Lord, we are sorry for that. We know that uh, we bear some of the guilt, Uh, my generation certainly does, because after we had won the great war and there was great prosperity in this land... Uh, we begin to turn away and we begin to go astray and fail to follow your ways and call upon your name. So Lord, we as a church want to be aware of the situation in our world today. We're not discouraged by any means. We have no doubt that you can turn things around. And I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful in prayer during this time of national spiritual emergency. Perhaps we can get a head start on the matter. And we know, Lord, that many times when things get a little bit better, like after the 9-11 attack, that people kind of give up and go back to their old ways. So we pray that You would do whatever it takes to get the attention of Your people in this land, and that Your people might pray and seek Your face and turn from their wicked ways. And Lord, that we might be a part of that. We ask that revival would begin with us. Help us to be faithful in prayer. We pray these things in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.